the same. So that is paragraph 2 and 3 of our confession. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are finishing chapter 4 together this morning. And if you've been working along uh, through chapter 4 with us, you uh, will recall that we have been looking particularly at parables. And we're not looking at a parable this morning. But we are, uh, if you were to connect just this thread, if you will, uh, what we see evidenced, um, not just in this chapter, but especially in this chapter, is the power of God, the sovereign power of God. And you know, for just your purposes later, the parallel passages to this in, in two of the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, you can find this particular account, historical account, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, and Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. And so, but we are looking at verses 35 to 41 of Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read and then I'll pray and then we'll begin to think through by God's grace this passage together. But the word of the Lord says this, on the same day when evening had come, right? So the same day he spoke in parables to the multitude. This is on the same day when the evening had come, he, Christ, said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, right? Christ was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, this very important question, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? We go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather this morning and God sing to you and speak to you, Lord, and read your word and hear your word preached and later this morning come to the table. And we ask your Holy Spirit would help us, God, to understand this passage. For those of us that are Christians this morning, I pray that it would strengthen and encourage us, God. And for those who are not Christians that are perhaps visiting this morning, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, Lord. Convict them of sin that they may express repentance and faith in Jesus alone. So we declare our dependence upon you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, <clears throat> I told you a few weeks ago that while our, our culture is more mindful of the resurrection of Jesus on, on Easter Sunday, which is, which is wonderful, right? We as Christians right, who, who gather every Lord's Day, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday, right? Christ, Christ rose on a Sunday, and since the first century, His church 
His bride, his body has gathered to celebrate the reality that this world will never be the same. Right? The God-man, Jesus, right? he, he, he's risen and his resurrection, it means our justification. Romans chapter 4 verse 25, right? his bodily and eternal resurrection, it means that one day we will bodily and eternally resurrect from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we, we gather every Lord's Day, we gather to remember that. We gather to be changed by that. And this morning in our text, we, we get this glimpse of just how good and authoritative our resurrected Savior is. We see His power as Creator God, and at the same time, we see His humanity, His true humanity as He sleeps in the midst of a storm, right? Jesus is, is truly God. The confession says very God, right? And truly very man. Now, if you were to compare this account of Jesus calming the storm by the word of his power with the other two accounts that I mentioned brief, briefly in both Matthew and in Luke, you'll find actually Mark to have more details, which is unlike what we have seen so far in Mark, right? In his more immediate format, his immediate style. And I think this is further evidence that, that Mark was influenced and mentored by the uh, Apostle Peter, who was a fisherman, right? If we continue to think about this gospel, the gospel of Mark is Peter's memoirs, which historically, right, church tradition has kind of thought of Mark's gospel in that way, then it makes sense there would be a more detailed account of this particular miracle. And this historical account, it concludes chapter 4 for us. And again, I mentioned a moment ago, it's further uh, demonstrative of, of, of the sovereign power of God, the free will of God, which we have seen as a theme in this particular chapter. Now, as we approach this text, I, I want us to note a parallel that I think is significant. I, I want to parallel th this historical account of Jesus calming the, the wind and the sea in, in this primary text here in, in Mark 4 with, with the historical account of Jonah, okay, which, by the way, is actual history, the, the story of Jonah and of the great fish and the repentance of Nineveh. We as Christians believe that that actually happened. Um, Jesus refers to it as a historical event, even in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. But I want to read a few verses from Jonah chapter 1 to help us see the parallel. And in doing so, my prayer is that we'll see the text better this morning, and as a result, we'll savor Christ more deeply. But look with me at Jonah chapter 1 as well. Verse, I'm going to read verses 4 on down to verse 6. And, and again, I'm going to weave throughout the sermon this morning, these two historical accounts together to come to a few conclusions about this passage. The Word of God says this in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was 
in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. Verse 6. So the captain came to him, came to Jonah and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And so we have the the mariners in this story of Jonah, right? And, and, And we have with Jesus experienced fishermen amongst the disciples here. And and there was this this great storm, and it was so great, uh, they were terrified, which is saying something, right? For experienced sailors to, to be terrified at a storm, it gives us good evidence that, that both the storm that we see in the account of Jonah and the storm that we see in our primary text here in Mark 4, that these were significant storms, right? I've, I've been on boats before in the midst of, of bad weather, right? Nothing like what we see in these two accounts, but when you're on a boat in the midst of bad weather and the wind is blowing and the lightning is flashing and the waves are crashing hard, you, you get a sense of just how small you are, don't you? And you get a sense of just how powerful the elements are, right? You can get desperate fast. And in both of these texts, we see just how dire things are, just based on the response of people that are familiar with being on the water in a boat. In Mark, we see it noted that the waves, quote, beat into the boat. Okay, water was filling the boat. They were going to sink. They were going to be overcome by this great storm, right? Matthew records it as the boat was, quote, covered with waves, covered with waves. In Jonah, the phrase, the ship was about to be broken up is what's used, right? So, we're already seeing a few similarities here as we kind of parallel these two accounts. Also note, Jonah was fast asleep. He's fast asleep in the midst of this storm. Jesus was fast asleep in the midst of the storm in Mark 4. And while I don't want to assume that, you know, the disciples later would have clearly noted the comparison between what the mariners experienced with Jonah and what they experienced with Jesus, I don't think it's inappropriate at all for us to note these similarities, especially knowing that Jesus does use the story of Jonah, the historical account of Jonah, to prophesy about his death and his burial and his glorious resurrection. He says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, again, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's not inappropriate for us to parallel these accounts here. Continue to look at the similarities with me. We see Jonah woken up by a desperate captain. In verse 6 of chapter 1, the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. He said, how, how in the world could you possibly be sleeping at a time like this? We're all about to die. And we see the disciples wake Jesus up. In chapter 4, verse 38, it says, And they awoke him and said to him, 
Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? So again, we see this, this fear and we see this desperation here as both the mariners in Jonah's day and the disciples in Christ's first advent, we see their behavior as they face this prospect of death. And right, I think looking at these two passages together is helpful because we shouldn't just note even some of the similarities, but even more so, I want us to note some of the differences that I think will help bring Christ into greater clarity for us. And so if you're taking notes, and kids, if you have your worship God with us, you can write along with us. The first charge or takeaway that we should see from this passage is this. Hear the voice of your Creator. Hear the voice of your Creator. Right? Jonah was awoken to appeal to his God. Right? It, it, it's clear from the Jonah text that it was the Lord who sent this great terrifying storm, right? We see that in verse 4. But Jonah, he was to appeal to the Lord as, as a creature, right? Jonah is a creature, right? And he appeals to the Lord as a creature does with his creator, as one who must come before his God and worship him and petition him for mercy, right? And let's not forget that unlike Jesus, right, Jonah He was sinful, and the storm that Jonah faced was brought about by the Lord to confront Jonah's disobedience. But Jonah, he was called upon to appeal to his God, to appeal to Yahweh for his deliverance, and that's what Jonah does. Now, we could spend the rest of this morning talking about how Jonah was cast into the sea and in doing so preserved the lives of the mariners and how that foreshadows Christ giving himself for us. Again, Jesus says as much in the Matthew passage. But what I want to keep central, because it's a main point in our text this morning, is that Jesus, unlike Jonah, he woke up and he spoke with authority to the elements. Right? He spoke with authority to the elements. Right? And believer, Christian, the elements know the voice of their creator. The elements know the voice of their creator. In fact, all of creation testifies about the creator. We see the psalmist write in Psalm chapter 19, the first six verses, the heavens declare, they testify to what? The glory of God. The glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Creation testifies about God. Or Paul, as he says regarding the testifying of 
God's creation in Romans chapter 1, verse, first part of verse 20, right? Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are what? Made. Made by the things that are made. Creation knows its creator, right? And Jesus, he wakes up in our account here, right? In his humanity, he wakes up. And in his deity, he speaks as the sovereign creator. As the sovereign creator. Verse 39 of chapter 4, he arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. This glorious, magnificent hearing of the command of Jesus is what we see going on in this passage here. Right? Matthew and Luke say that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. Right? Only Mark records Jesus as saying, peace be still, the words of the actual rebuke. One, one commentator calls this rebuke, quote, too Sublime words of command from a master to his servants, the elements. Athanasius, in the early to mid-300s, he said of this passage, quote, For when he, Jesus, arose and rebuked the sea and silenced the storm, he plainly disclosed two things. That the storm of the sea was not simply from winds, but from the fear of the Lord who walked upon it. And that the Lord who rebuked it was not a creature but rather its creator. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he testifies about Jesus as creator. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, we see this. For by him, by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him and in him all and he is before all things and in him all things consist right and and this jesus who commands the waves in the sea to obey him commands you and me to repent of our particular sins and to trust in him alone for salvation. We've already seen Jesus say this in our study through the gospel of Mark. He says in chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This isn't a question from Christ. This isn't a, won't you please do it if it's not too much trouble This is Jesus saying, I am the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth, and I'm the long-awaited for Messiah, and I've come and I've brought my kingdom with me. Therefore, you repent of your sin and believe the gospel. It's a command. It's a command. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've rarely darkened the doors of a local church building. Right? Maybe you're here because your wife or you know, your mom or your husband or a dad or a sibling or friend right, invited you to come because it's Easter. Right? Praise God. We're extremely glad that you're here. And I want to challenge you since you're here in this very moment. Hear the voice of your Savior this morning. 
And don't delay in coming to him. Obey his command to come to him this morning. Repent and believe the gospel, which is according to uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. So hear the voice of your creator this morning. Second observation. This leads us naturally into a second observation. We must come to Jesus alone for deliverance. We must come to Jesus alone for deliverance. We see in verse 38 of Mark 4, he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And then we see a second rebuke. Right? He re- rebukes the winds and the waves, and then he rebukes the disciples for their despair in the midst of this great trial. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now, I want us to notice the kindness of Jesus in that he rebuked his disciples after he rescued them. Okay? He's a, he's a good Savior, and he's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. Now, the disciples here They're rebuked for their despairing, for their living as if they had no hope, no deliverance. And Jesus' question in some way is, it's, it's kind of an echo of the abrupt and desperate way that he was woken up. The disciples said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus says, how is it that you have no faith? Friend, If the disciples had Jesus in the boat with them and they were still despairing and fearing, right? How much more do we need to be reminded that Jesus alone is truly our deliverer, right? 2,000 years removed from this historical account. Where is it that you go when you despair? Where is it that you go when you despair or when you're facing hardship? Where do you go for deliverance? Or for peace. Some of us may say to escape. Where do you go to escape? Is it a spouse? Do you find solace or comfort, peace in your children? Is it your vocation? Is it your major or grades at the university? Is it in the approval of man wanting these words of affirmation constantly? Do you turn to sinful habits, even secret habits or binge habits in order to find some sort of solace in the midst of your troubles? Or is Christ your deliverer? Is Christ your deliverer? The psalmist in Psalm 107 verses 23 to 32 gives good commentary as where the stormy waters and winds should have certainly driven those that were with Jonah, and driven those as well, even more so, that were with Christ. And if we can for a moment think of the stormy waters and winds as our troubles in life, again, don't lose sight of the historicity of both passages, but if we can do that for a moment, we'll see more clearly how the Lord can use the very things that bring you trouble as a means by which He brings you to Himself. The psalmist says, starting in verse 23 of Psalm 107, "...those who go down to the sea in ships..." who do business on great waters, they see 
the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. And at their wit's end, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they're glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Is this not what the Lord does when Jonah is cast into the sea? Is this not what Jesus does when he speaks to the winds and the waves? Right? Is this not ultimately what Christ did when he dealt with our biggest trouble, which is sin on the cross? Right? Our biggest trouble really is that of sin. And we have to come to Jesus alone who has made peace. Right? Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. It pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, get this, having made peace through the blood of his cross, right? Our biggest trouble, that one of sin, it was dealt with by Jesus through his death and through his glorious resurrection. So in light of that, how much more should we come to him with all of our lesser troubles? And I don't mean lesser troubles in, in, in such a way that I'm trying to trivialize what you're going through this morning. Many here have faced and are facing extremely difficult circumstances, but when that's compared to this chasm that was our doing because of our sin and knowing that it has been dealt with and that the empty tomb is the evidence of it being dealt with, our troubles now, in light of that, are in fact lesser troubles, lesser troubles. And we can, by God's grace, adopt the mindset of the Apostle Paul when we make it the habit of our lives to come to Jesus with our troubles. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, for our light affliction, and Paul's writing this as someone who suffered immensely, For our light affliction, some of your translation says these momentary afflictions, these temporary afflictions, but our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We come to Jesus for deliverance alone, and this is our inheritance. This is our inheritance. He solved our biggest trouble. A separation between us and God because of our sin. How much more should we come to him knowing that he may, not de- he may not deliver you in this life from the trials and troubles that you're facing, but a deliverance is coming because he really did raise, rise from the dead and he really is coming back and we too will rise from the dead. There's deliverance. That deliverance is Christ alone. The final thing here, the fear of God casts out all other fear. The fear of God casts out all other fear. Verse 41, 
And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Right? The, the phrase feared exceedingly can be translated to they were struck by deep awe. Right? Compare this to how the pagan mariners that threw Jonah overboard responded at their deliverance. Verse 16 of Jonah 1. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're not a Christian this morning, you should fear God because you'll be met by His fierce wrath on the day of judgment. The day that we're headed toward. And you should ask yourself the question that the disciples asked themselves. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's the most important question that you can ask and answer in your life. And the answer is, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah who came to seek and came to save the lost. Behold your God. Repent of your sin. Trust in Him alone for salvation. And for those this morning that are Christians, the fear of God is immensely comforting because it frees you from being constantly manipulated by the fears and anxieties that come with living in a fallen world. Now, we, we can't forget that we as Christians fear a good, unchanging God. That should steady us. That should steady us. It, it should clear away the fog for us. It can help us fight temptation. Our Lord is a sure and steady anchor in an otherwise constantly changing culture. Right? To fear God is to reverence him and see him as the great author and sustainer of all things. To fear God is to seek to live before his face. To fear God is to not fear a creature. Fearing God's good. Quote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Psalm 111.10. Quote, praise the Lord, blessed is the man, happy is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed, Psalm 112, 1 and 2. Quote, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate, Proverbs 8, 13. Quote, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death, Proverbs 14, 27. Quote, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble, Proverbs 15, 16. So this morning, hear the voice of your Creator. This morning, come to Jesus alone for deliverance and fear the Lord. To fear him is truly a fountain of life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you 
for this time that we've had in your word. And God, I pray that if there is an unbeliever, a non-Christian here this morning, pray that your spirit would draw them to yourself, Lord, and that they would repent of sin and trust in you, Lord, what we as Christians have done. And we thank you for that gift. And I pray that we as believers would be encouraged by your word, Lord, that you would build us up in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.